imperfect chronological order. We don't do it for just for knowledge's sake in the sense of, oh, I've learned a bunch of narratives or stories. But in it, we understand and learn a little more about who God the Father is by seeing who Jesus the Son is. We see his mercy and his love and his forgiveness. We see our lives. And despite of that, we see God's love, mercy, and forgiveness. And today is, again, one of those situations, narrative, where it shows us more about who the Father is and what He wants and our place in that calling. And so in Matthew 9, starting with verse 9, it says this, As Jesus went on from there, He saw a man called Matthew, or Levi, sitting in a tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now we who read this go, well, that's interesting, other than the fact that, oh my goodness, he just basically left his employment to follow Jesus. A little further in the story, we'll see just the feelings about Levi slash Matthew. For you see, Tax collectors were hated. You can relate to that when you sign your little, your checks paying the income taxes or whatever sales taxes, especially on a big item. You're not too thrilled about paying them. And the government is smart enough to know that they just want you to send a check. They don't want you to see the person because then you'd probably give them a lot of abuse because you're not too thrilled with paying the taxes. But not only in the sense of that, like most people are not thrilled with tax collectors, the Jews particularly hated tax collectors because they participated with the Gentiles who were running their country and they wanted their country to be run by Jews, not by Romans. And so they were paying tax. And so in essence, you were the tax collectors were collaborating with the enemy. And anytime you collaborate with the enemy, you're not well-liked. On top of this, tax collectors was a very uh, prosperous vocation. For you see, all Rome cared about was collecting their sum of money. So they would tell each tax collector, this is the amount of money that you're to collect and we're to get. Anything above that, sure. And so the tax collectors would collect sums larger than they were required, which then made their lives very comfortable and rich because of that, and all the people knew that. So they were disliked. Which makes it interesting. You see, up to this point, we've seen Jesus call various men to follow after him. Most of them have been fishermen. So they have a honest job, kind of what we would call maybe middle class people. Certainly not people that you're hated. Maybe somebody who wasn't the best and the brightest, didn't go to the elite colleges or universities or seminaries, but they at least did honest work. Jesus called a tax collector which tells me this, 
If Jesus called a tax collector, then maybe it's okay that he called me. And maybe it's okay that he called you. You see, not everyone he calls is the elite. Not everyone he calls is special. He actually sometimes calls people who are hated and despised and rejected. And Jesus knows all about that because he will be despised and rejected. And so the hope that I have for you this morning that if Jesus wasn't so selective as to call Matthew slash Levi, then he's also calling you. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, Luke puts it this way, and I'm going to read one quick verse on Luke, which simply says this. And Levi, that being Matthew, gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. So this wasn't just a party of a few select people. Matthew invited all the tax collectors and others to this banquet, to this reception, to introduce Jesus to his friends. And sometimes when we make our plans about church growth, we figure all these different things about, well, we should do this and this program and, and this advertisement and stuff. Sometimes the most effective method of church growth is finding someone who didn't know Jesus and introducing them to them. And then they introduce their friends to Jesus. And that's exactly what Matthew's doing. And Jesus not only goes to Matthew's house, which is kind of unsuspected because he's a tax collector, but he's reclining at the table with them. You see, it wasn't just sit around a table. They actually laid and, and would eat with one arm propped and they would eat, but they would be very close in contact with one another. It was an intimate setting plus the concept in, in that culture was when you ate with somebody, that was one of the more intimate things that you can do. And so you kind of associated yourself with that person when you ate with them. Again, Jesus does something unexpected. Now, the Pharisees Whenever Jesus does something that's unexpected, always object. So it says, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, notice they didn't say it to him. They always attack those around you. Because why do, what do people do? They're hoping to drive a wedge between you and those you minister to. So they, so they talk to the disciples. Because the disciples haven't got graduated from Jesus' seminary yet. They're susceptible. So they ask their disciples, Why is it that your teacher is eating with the tax collectors and the sinners? Ooh, who wants to associate with those people? After all, 
We follow the law. We're holy. We're pure. We're righteous. Why would, why would your teacher want to do that? But when Jesus heard this, he said, notice he doesn't allow the disciples to answer. He answers it for them. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus gets right to the point. Now, as many of you know, I have spent a lot of time this last year at a place called the City of Hope. It's a place where people who are sick or ill go for treatment. They have uh, facilities plus a hospital there. And there are four types of people who are usually there. You can tell that I've been there a lot because most people would know about the fourth group. So I'm going to start with the fourth group first, kind of validate that I've been there a lot. There are those who come to the City of Hope as guests who go on a tour. Those guests who go on a tour may be there to perhaps donate monies or develop programs so that other people can uh, donate money to this cause of appealing people. Or it may be that they come to see how they interact and treat so that they can take that information and that wisdom back to their hospital or place of treatment so that they can understand. So there are the those who, who are on the tour. Very few of those, and you have to be there several times, unless you're lucky the first time you show up, but you usually don't see them. The main group that you will see are the patients, those who are ill, those who go there because they don't yet know what the diagnosis is or want to be confirmed what the diagnosis is. There are those who go for treatment and for monitoring. And you know who they are, because most of them are fairly thin and frail. And in various degrees of illness or recovery. Many have lost their hair. Many need to be pushed by wheelchairs. They need some kind of assistance. But all of them have a little armband. So every time that they go to receive monitoring or treatment, they have to look at the armband to make sure you're the right person and they ask you your name and date of birth so they make sure that they're treating the right person. And so those are the principal groups that are there. The second group that are there are those who are there to be assisting the patients. Either they needed somebody to drive them there or push their wheelchair, or to do whatever to assist because of their illness. Or maybe they might be even recovering, but the sense of support, both moral and physical, to assist those who are patient. So you'll see those. And some of those are family and friends or loved ones. And, and periodically you'll see those who are basically paid attendants. You know, there's a particular lady I think of who... I see there frequently, and, and she's in a wheelchair. And I've seen at least three or four different young ladies assisting her. Uh, none of them the same ethnic group 
as her. Uh, so they're they're the third group, which is now the of the four groups, are the doctors and nurses and technicians and staff. And they're to help treat or diagnose or monitor the patients. And at the City of Hope, I find that most of the people who are in that group who are the physicians and nurses and, and staff and attendants and technicians generally have compassion for those that they're dealing with. You know, every like any place that you go, there'll be those who just go, you know, maybe you ought to get a different job. But by and large, it, it's amazing for the number of people who work there, the, the type of willingness they have to minister. And the people that I've noticed who have the most compassion are the ones who have either maybe not had the same illness, but for instance may have been in the hospital for a long time, and they know what it's like to be in the hospital for a long time. And they seem to be more sympathetic and empathetic than others. And the other group that seems to be very compassionate are those who've had the same illness that the people who are being treated have. Because they know what you're going through. And they know the steps of recovery and the difficulty. And so like one of the, the people said, people will wonder, well, why don't you, or why aren't you active? Why don't you do things? And you'll naturally want to say, well, I'm tired. Well, everybody gets tired, so they just say, well, take, get a nap and you'll feel better. And so this person said, no, use the word fatigue. This is a different word. Have them understand it's like carrying around a weight. And that makes you more fatigued. And so they understand what you're going through. And so they can be very compassionate. Now, why have I gone through that? Because I wanted to, to share what I've been going through. I wanted to give you a, an image. Because this place that we call FBC West, is more than a city of hope. It is a kingdom of hope. You see, we come here because we're sick. It's terminal. It's called sin. And the difference between this place and a place like City of Hope is that while there may be all those different groups, all of those different groups, other than the those who are on a tour, and we'll get those who come and check us out and then go someplace else. But the re the other three groups, the patients, the assistants, and the staff and the doctors, we're all that in one. You see, all of us are patients. And all of us, as we see the touching of Jesus heal us, we become doctors and nurses and staff and technicians. And we are compassionate because there, for the grace of God, I have gone. And God has given me hope not to cure me of a physical illness or disease, but to heal me from sin that causes my death and gives me eternal life. 
and talk about hope. There may be a hope of someday curing of being cured of a disease, but in the entire recorded history of the Bible, only two people have not died, and they still ain't with us. But Jesus offers the hope of our trust in Him of eternal life. And so people will come to you and say, well, there's nothing but a bunch of hypocrites at church. Go, amen, that's right. Because it's a hospital. And the best way to get rid of hypocrisy is to go to church and learn that you're a hypocrite. That you have that disease and you need to be cured. But let's face it. Most people, if not all, who will accuse you of being a hypocrite or one themselves. Almost no one who claims that they don't believe in God, that we all just kind of either evolved or whatever, do not live their lives that way. They live their lives in hypocrisy. Because they all say, we came from ooze, there's nothing, there's no spirit, whatever. And what do those same people say? There needs to be a purpose to my life. Well, if we all came from whatever, all going back, what's the purpose? People say, well, there's got to be a reason for this to happen. Well, if there's no intellect, there's no reason. And so why do you, why do you live your life as if there's some reason to live? Why would you collect as many things and fortunes if we're all just accidentally here? But just as that staff at the City of Hope, we also need to be compassionate as we understand what it's like to be a sinner, what it's like to be a hypocrite, what it's like to live for ourselves alone and deny God. So Jesus tells them, the healthy don't need a doctor. It's the sick that do. But he doesn't say plainly here, but it's evident. Everyone is sick. And everyone needs a physician. But then he gives them a homework assignment. And I'm going to stop there and let you think about that. He gave the Pharisees a homework assignment. Same homework assignment that I'm going to help you with, but I want you to think about as well. He says this to the Pharisees, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. He goes, go learn this, that I desire compassion or mercy or loyalty and not sacrifice. Now, in a little bit, in another message, we're going to see that they didn't do the homework assignment. 
But I want to give you two passages that will help you on this homework assignment. But there are many other places in the Old Testament, because after all, at this point, the New Testament wasn't written when he told them to learn this. The first you see in your bulletin, and it comes from Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Now, I want to preface this by saying, when we're believers, we frequently desire to be used by God. We want to be called and used, and most of that, what we, what we mean by that, is God's going to give us a successful ministry where thousands will come and, re, and acknowledge who He is, and maybe even they'll name a seminary after us because we're so influential in the ministry that God has called us to. And that's what we think about. Or we think about pastoring or becoming a missionary or whatever it may be. Hosea was called to be a prophet. However, I dare say you probably would have wanted Hosea's ministry. Because God said, Hosea, I'm calling you as a prophet. Here's the first thing you're to do. I want you to go mar marry a prostitute. The scriptures call her a harlot. A woman who sells her body for sexual favors in exchange for property. He says, I want you to marry that person. And in essence, by marrying that person, she doesn't change. She continues in her prostitution. Thanks, Lord. What a wonderful ministry you called me to. As Hosea deals with the Lord and as God talks to Hosea, and Hosea in this discovers exactly what it's like to be God and calling God's people. That they never are loyal, that they never have their first love after Him, but are always chasing other gods or other things rather than the God that called them. In Hosea 6, after God has rejected His people, and whatever God has says this, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day, that we may live before Him. So let us know, let us press on, to know the Lord. First thing that Jesus is trying to teach them is you know the law. Or rather, you know all the rules and regulations that you develop around the law, but you don't know God. You may know that the rule says you're to honor the Sabbath and not to work, but you have no clue what God's doing when He's resting. You may know that thou shalt not steal, but you provide all kinds of ways around that you don't call it stealing. You have all of the exceptions. You may know the rules and regulations, but you don't know God. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. Press on, which means it's not easy. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. 
and he will come to us like the rain. Let the spring rain watering the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? And what shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. He says, you may be loyal for a brief time, but you're not, your heart isn't mine always. The slightest bit of heat or difficulty and you turn and go. Therefore, I have sown them and hewn them into pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth and the judgments on which on, on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty or mercy rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant and they have dealt treacherously against me. God says, my people have the same problem that the first man had. He breaks the covenant continually. But my desire is not for you to follow the covenant, but to know me. Not sacrifice, to know me. And to be loyal to me. That's one of the lessons that Jesus is wanting them to learn. And one of the lessons that we need to learn is that it's not about the rules and regulations. It's about knowing God and being like Him. The second prophet that is discussed comes from Micah. And in Micah chapter 6, it says this, starting with verse 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings, with yearling calf? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousands rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts and the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So the prophet is asking what we ask. When we sin, when we mess up, when we rebel against God, what is it that God wants? And most of us think, well, if we give up this or do that or whatever, that somehow God will be satisfied and that God will be impressed. Shall I give you 10,000 offerings? You know, is, that what it, is that what you want? And give you rivers of oil. What is it that God wants? And God says it's not the sacrifice. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you. He's told us. Learn what this means. But to do justice, to love kindness, mercy, or loyalty, and to walk humbly with your God. You see, the Pharisees walked pridefully in their rules and regulations, but they did not walk humbly with their God. For if they had, they would know what it was like to be merciful and kind. But instead, they were judgmental. Instead of being with the sinners and the tax collectors, 
that they may no longer be sinners and tax collectors. They stay afar and say, look at those people. I'm glad I'm not like them. And too many churches think that we are holy and we don't do this and we don't do that. And, and you, you can name the list better than I can of what Christians aren't supposed to do. So they think when they walk in the door, all they'll find is judgment. But not in the churches that have learned to know God. To seek justice and mercy. And to walk humbly with Him. And to understand that we're all patients in the same hospital. And we are seeking the help of the great physician. So he gave them homework to do. Going back to Matthew chapter 9, starting with verse 14. So now we've seen the Pharisees question why Jesus associated with whom he associated with. Now we're going to find people who are a little more closer to Jesus in the sense of they were disciples of John. So they're not disciples of the Pharisees. They've come under the teaching of John. And so then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Part of what we do is we fast. That We're looking, we're, we're making ourselves humble, we're, we're beseeching God, and we're denying ourselves. The Pharisees do that. They claim to be holy. We do that because we're following our Rabbi John, the baptizer. So why aren't your disciples following the same system? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? He, he gives them a life lesson. When you're at a wedding and you're a part of the, the wedding party, your job isn't to mourn and cry and say, Oh, whatever. I know some of you have had both the groom or the bride, and you say, are you really sure you want to do this? I don't think she or he is that great a catch. Maybe you should think twice. But once they're committed, your job is to make sure that that day is a happy day. You're rejoicing with them because it's a life-changing event. We're getting married. We're going to be together. And so Jesus says, just as when you are part of the wedding party, your job isn't to be mourning. You can do that at a funeral. It's the wedding party. So when the bridegroom's there, you ought to be enjoying it. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus isn't saying his disciples will never fast. He's saying now is not the appropriate time. Then he says this, But no one puts a patch on unshrunken cloth on a old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Now, Jesus uses uh, some additional language. He'll say, you don't put a new patch on an old garment. He, The other Gospels gives us a little more information. And you can understand why. Both it's new, so if you cut an if you cut a new patch, you ruined or at least made less 
usable the new article of clothing to repair an old one, they don't match. Both in the sense of even if they're the same material, a new piece of striped clothing will look different than an old piece of striped clothing because the colors fade. But he says not only is it noticeable and whatever, the patch new, once you start washing it, will shrink. And when it shrinks, it will tear the old garment, making it even worse. So you've not made it better, you've made it worse. And then he uses the second analogy. Nor do people put their new wine into old wineskins. Other the wine, otherwise the wineskin bursts and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins and they both are preserved. Jesus is saying, I'm doing something new. If I put this new thing in the Pharisees, it'll just blow them up. And then they'll be broken and unusable. And what I put into them will be lost. Because you put the new wine, because when you put wine in a wineskin, as it ferments, it stretches the, the, the material, the leather. And once it's as lost as elasticity, if you put new wine in it, it won't be able to stretch anymore, breaks, and you lose it. Jesus says, I'm not making that mistake. I'm putting my ministry into new disciples. And while he was saying these things to them, a, I'm sorry, I, I'm gone too far. I need to go to. Did I mess up? Yeah, we'll we'll use that. So Jesus demonstrates what he does is new and different. He calls people that other people would never call. Not to say I'm better than but I understand that our God is merciful. Our God desires mercy and justice. Not what can we do for him. Because as the psalmist said, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need anything that you have. What he wants is you to be like him. And the best way to be like him is to be like his son. Jesus so knew what the Father did. He goes, I do what I see the Father doing. Because he knew the Father. The Old Testament and the New Testament calls us not to different gods but to the same God who says to seek justice and mercy and to walk humbly with your God. To walk means to live day after day after day. 
All too often, we come to a church slash hospital to get a shot of inoculation and then go out and live our lives as if the world is no different. Instead of saying, I come to worship Him, to know Him better. And by knowing Him better, I take on His attributes. There's not a parent, no matter how ugly you are, that isn't impressed with when somebody says, that baby looks just like you. I see your eyes. I see the nose. I see whatever. How must God enjoy it? He says, you look like your father. I see the kindness. I see the forgiveness. I see the mercy. I see that you know him. You're like him. We use the term Christian, which means little Christ. Would it not be wonderful if that were true? That we walked as Jesus walked. That people who were different than us wanted to be with us because they sensed the lack of judgment and the mercy and the love that we are. Not that we do, that we are. For you see, God is love. It's not something he shows, it's something he is. And we need to be merciful, not because it's something we do, but it's something we are. We need to be kind, not because it's something that we do randomly, because it's something that we are. And before you make a, a justification, say, yeah, but that's not me. Nobody thought Matthew would be that guy. Everybody thought he's a tax collector and a sinner. And who wants to be with them? And Jesus says, I do. And Jesus says that to you and to me. I want to be with you. I want to walk with you. I want to be with you. I want you to understand who I am. And see the richness that relationship brings. And all God's people said,